questions that have come in and I want to start with one on social skills. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody has written in on our live feature and says what exactly are social skills? When people say things like you need to improve your social skills or we're trying to get our kid into a social skills group, I always wonder what it is they actually mean. Uh, a great question. So well, I mean, it is a great question, <laughs> and I guess depending on how you look at it, you'll have a different answer for that. So just like any other set of skills, language skills, cognitive skills, you know, there's a series of things that we label under the heading of social skills, and they could be as uh, basic as something like eye contact mm -hmm. or as advanced as uh, being able to read other people's facial expressions and understand what they mean. So, or you know, and what we do, you know, from the from the perspective of uh, social skills being one of the deficits of, in in autism, then really in that arena, all we're looking for is things like lack of eye contact, not knowing, um, not recognizing feature things like how close you should stand to someone or how you should interact with a group and those types of things. Um, to then all the way, you know, more advanced perspective of what social skills are, you're, we're teaching um, very, very advanced things, you know, differentiating between um, interactions that occur with one person versus a group, with people you know versus people who are new. I mean, so it's a huge array, and I think the best uh, we've done in terms of defining it um, is to is on our skills uh, uh, domains. If you go on our skills website and you look into the social skills domain area, you'll see a breakdown of the different areas of social skills that we actually try to teach. Yeah. Now, having said that, like anything else, there's always a range. Like a person could potentially have uh, the ability to do a variety of social behaviors but mm -hmm. choose not to because they're just someone who, you know, prefers alone time to right. being with others. So there's there's a variation, but it's just a matter of being able, being capable of those skills, I suppose. Absolutely. And it seems like to me, uh, you know, coming into the field of autism uh, as a parent, right. I was completely unexposed and I, I would have been somebody asking this question, saying, what exactly does this mean? Um, and over the years, it's been fascinating to me to see all the different aspects to it right. and to realize that in this spectrum of uh, autism spectrum disorder, but in the spectrum of life, people have different skill sets Absolutely. in this area. Oh. And as I read through the social skills area of, of the skills program, I remember being really interested in seeing the things where I have a deficit. Like yeah, I don't know, I don't know how to end a conversation. <laughs> it's something I'm working on, but I don't know how to end a conversation. And sure. that's one of the lessons that's sure. in there. Sure. And I looked at, uh, and my husband will forgive me for saying this, that he has a harder time joining a conversation and being heard. Right. Uh, and I saw all the different aspects of that lesson of joining a conversation when it, and shared some of it with him and said, you know, I think you have all of these, but you're missing two and 12. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Sure. And, and to think that we're adults that are 
neurotypical, whatever right, that means, right. and imagining for our kids, taking all of these little variables, all the different opportunities that they have to succeed, which also means there's opportunities to have missed something. Absolutely. And that, I think, is really critical because social skill, even within the same area of social skills, they change as we age. Yes. Right? So whereas it would be appropriate for a child to, um, let's say, engage with in conversation with a group of other children in one way. Mm -hmm. like get people's attention it's not appropriate anymore if you're 45 years old you yeah so what we, the the concepts are there but they change as we age which really goes to the point that um, we're not trying to teach every single thing we're trying to teach our kids to observe mm -hmm. and be able to continue to learn yeah. um, my mentor Lovas uh, professor Lovas always used to say um, there's a point where you know you're successful in the intervention because you've taught the child how to learn. Yes. And that's really all it is because the child continues to learn then from their environment. Yeah. And the other thing about social skills is that I think if you were to summarize it in a nutshell, it is um, hugely dependent on the ability to read other people's minds mm. or the ability to put your place put yourself in their place let's put right. it that way and um just even within the typically developing population let's say just with all the people we work with in this building for instance shannon you'll find people who are incredible in terms of intuition or being able to uh, figure out what someone's either trying to say or just be cautious of other people or be aware of other people, see things from their perspective. Yes. And then there are people who are pretty oblivious to that, right? Right, right. And that's also why possibly they say that women have better social skills. Mm -hmm. And that's probably because women are just have a stronger sense of intuition right. about others. So, you know, social skills, I think the biggest uh, factor that leads to positive social skills or, or strength in social skills is is the theory of mind yeah. ability, perspective taking ability. That really, really helps. So often when, with my own children, or I tell my friends who have children as well, uh, you know, teach empathy, teach yeah. the child how to take other people's perspectives because yeah. that will really uh, flow into a lot of other sub-skills. Yes, it's an amazing area. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and there's so much work that can be done with our kids. To, and I've seen my son make improvement, but I do see what you're saying about that it changes with time. Yeah. And and the skill set changes with time. Exactly. It's fascinating. <laughs> fascinating area. Uh, but really appreciate the question. We have a bunch of questions that have come in about sleep and then an interesting comment um, that came in from an ind individual who's on the spectrum. But I want to start with a question about uh, sleep. Um and I'm just finding it here on Facebook now that I've lost it. Okay, because uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, but again, um, parents are writing in about it. The, this question is, my three-year-old won't sleep through the night. Um, we are now at five milligrams of melatonin and two teaspoons of Benadryl a night. I'm wow. losing my mind from lack of sleep help. And another parent very graciously mm. wrote in and said that their son is eight um, and that they have the same sleep issue going on, but that they're trying dietary things, for instance, bananas, apples, grapes that have a lot of phenols, um, and then doing Epsom salt baths. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that has helped that individual child. I think it's important to note that in some children, doing the phenols could possibly have the exact opposite effect. 
Well, I don't I have enough experience in dietary change uh, and how it would influence sleep in a positive way. Mm -hmm. I will say that in general for our kids, and I'm really glad it's working for this family, mm -hmm. but you have to, in general, I think we have to be very careful with phenols with our kids yeah. because phenols um, overburden the detox system. Mm -hmm. And if you are uh, eating things with high phenolic content like bananas or chocolate or, mm -hmm. or any of those, uh, it takes a lot of work to detoxify from those. And then when you're exposed to other toxins, they you can't detoxify everything. So right. it's just that simple. But uh, of course, there are dietary restrictions that do help sleep, for sure. So, you know, uh, nothing that's stimulating. And, and for our kids, that could be a variety of different things. And sugars, of course, very obvious one. But, uh, you know, there are some diets that say uh, red food coloring. Um, there are certain things that are just have a stimulating effect on our kids. And, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you can find literature on that because yes. this type of thing is pretty common. Um, for the other family who was talking about... Uh, uh, giving their child uh, two spoons of Benadryl and as well as five milligrams of melatonin. I hear you. I mean, it is so difficult sometimes to just get the right stuff for our kids. I uh, Melatonin is good for our kids. And again, I can't uh, um, tell you the correct dosage of melatonin because it really has to do with your child's body weight. But, you know, an adult dose, an adult can easily take six milligrams of uh uh, an adult being like over 100 pounds, you right. can basically take six milligrams of melatonin and it's healthy for you. It's good for you because melatonin interacts and helps you produce serotonin and it's, it's something beneficial. Um, but melatonin on its own, I found, has this cycle where it will, perhaps it'll put you to sleep, perhaps, and then it'll wake you up like three, four hours later or five, six hours later. And that's not necessarily something you want. If I take melatonin, if my children take melatonin, it doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. What does work is this other uh, uh, chewable tablet called, I think it's uh, Tranquil Sleep. Mm -hmm. And it is melatonin as well as um, tryptophan, 5-HTP. Mm -hmm. And that is really effective. Mm -hmm. The other thing about melatonin is I found that if you, and a lot of people tell me this as well, if you, you really, if you take melatonin more than three nights in a row, it really won't work anymore. Oh. So you kind of need to have periods of break. So you'll okay. have three nights, perhaps then the fourth night you don't take it, then three nights, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, you know, that is the only thing I can really suggest. If you try this, the combination of tryptophan and melatonin and it still isn't working for your child, you probably should go to a sleep disorders clinic. Okay. Just because you don't want to continue to give your child Benadryl forever. I mean, any medication that you're using to that extent for a purpose other than what it's intended to be uh, isn't going to be good. It also is going to require some detoxification, but also your child will habituate to it. And, you know, um, there are, and maybe if your child's doing well on Benadryl, there's other issues. For instance, the yeah. child needs anti-inflammatories. You should really um, consult with a specialist. Okay. And I can't say this enough. Like, sleep is so critical yeah. to our kids. And sometimes we forget environmental 
factors as well. Some mm -hmm. our kids keep in mind a lot of our kids have very sensitive hearing. So, you know, spend the nights if you haven't already in your child's room is perhaps uh, let's say the sprinkler going on right. in the middle of the night that would wake your child. It's things that perhaps wouldn't wake you, but right. there's something going on in the environment. Is it dark enough? Is okay. it So there's all these other environmental things. And then of course make sure that you keep your child on a routine yeah perhaps the child is napping a lot sometimes I feel I find that our kids sleep a lot better once they've reached the age where we can get rid of their naps during yes. the day yeah and things improve pretty significantly then um, you know make sure that your child doesn't have other GI issues which will definitely keep the child up right. at night sometimes our kids do have some sort of pain and they can't express it yeah so you know those are some ideas if you haven't already thought about them but and if you have I, I think it's just important to check into um, have a sleepy EG done figure out why your child when and why your child's waking up if your child isn't going through a full cycle of sleep or and is isn't getting about five to six hours at least of mm -hmm. straight sleep then uh, they're not producing enough neurotransmitters, and so that's going to start messing with the biochemistry completely. Okay, I have a question for you. It, it, when you go to the sleep clinic and do the, do the EEG, will that recognize if the child is having tiny, small seizures? Because yes. I keep hearing all these parents yes. discovering years later that their child is yes. having these small seizures. So Subclinical, yes. Okay. Seizures that you won't even see in behavior, but okay. yeah, EEG will, is the best way to determine those. Okay, fabulous. Mm -hmm. uh, great advice. And then we did have uh, a 26-year-old who is on the spectrum who wrote in and said to us, uh, I saw your segment on sleep issues and thought you might appreciate some insight from the horse's mouth, Great. which we always appreciate. Uh, they go on to say, I'm a 26-year-old autistic adult who has spent my entire life fighting insomnia. Although I can't speak for everyone, but in my case at least, I think some people, autistic or not, are just predisposed to be nocturnal. Forcing me to stay in bed didn't help because I could just lay there awake for hours. No matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't drift off to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. I always found it easier to fall asleep during the day and got more fulfilling quality of sleep if I slept in the day. I've been fighting this fight for 26 years and it's a losing battle. Like I said, maybe some people are just predisposed to being nocturnal. I don't know if you'll find this helpful or not. I just thought you'd like some insight. And I always love to hear from individuals on the spectrum because you know, I'm trying to take my child's perspective and sometimes getting your perspective helps me to do that. Absolutely. And first of all, may I say how well spoken that individual uh, is, the and, way they've written it. Yes. It's so nice. Yeah. And and the thing about it, I, this may not be true of everyone. Absolutely. Uh, love that because clearly you're taking perspective. Beautiful no, writing. No question. Yeah, Absolutely. very beautiful writing. So I, I don't know, you know, you I, I would say if this individual has... Um, tried to sleep without napping, without sleeping during the day, um, then you're right. You probably are more uh, suited to sleep uh, during the day. But the thing is that if you are sleeping during the day, you're never going to know really um, if you're able to sleep at night because then you're just not as tired. Yeah. Um, having said that, I think that anything that helps you remain functional, I mean, if you are sleeping better during the day and you can work that into your life schedule, in other words, your family members are fine with it and you have a job that is maybe a night job or uh, something that allows you to work, uh, you know, later in the day or so, then great. 
why not? It doesn't yeah. really matter as long as you can function within the world. A lot of people actually live that way, obviously, because they're they have night jobs. Yeah. So yeah, that's fine. But I mean, it's just important to know if it's if it's bothering you, then then it would be worth uh, changing it or trying to change it. Some people, Shannon, like to sleep during the day because it's it feels safer. There's a lot of noise around, or there's other people in the house that makes them feel safer. There's all these other reasons that could potentially interact with it. But yeah, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with it as long as it maintains your functionality. Right. But for those of us who have kids that are school-aged we that don't have that option difficult. that's right you don't <laughs> you I mean, well you do in some ways like I look at my uh, nanny you know and her she uh, could potentially after she drops the kids off at school or helps me drop one of the kids off at school she could um, she could potentially sleep from eight till I guess three yeah but yeah. I mean for for our kids who won't stay asleep to put yeah. them to bed they have to be on day hours to go to school until the time that's when they right. have elementary school at night that's right which yeah. I'm not seeing happening with the current economic no, <laughs> situation I don't think so no. uh, but yeah so they for at least a period of time we have to try yeah. to regulate them to the point where they're going to wake up in the morning and be able to go to school and be productive that's right it might be a losing battle battle in some in some cases uh, right. but we have to keep fighting the good fight absolutely and always remember that changing your state is difficult in other words going from awake to asleep and asleep to awake is difficult those mm -hmm. are two transitions everybody tries to avoid mm -hmm. most of the time or most majority of people so it's always hard to fall asleep mm -hmm. and it's always hard to wake up mm. so because of those two things you know behavioral terms again mm -hmm. we avoid those things mm -hmm. which is why we often like to end up sleeping later mm -hmm. or or waking up later you know and we go into this cycle of being tired all the time and I was just reading something about um, when you miss sleep how long it takes to actually recover that mm. you know making up for your lost sleep is, is pretty intense but as I said with anything else it just matters the only thing that matters is your functionality it's like if you have are able to function and that's your schedule then yeah. great why not I, I think I'm still catching up on sleep I missed in the first two years of my son's life. I think it's going to take me 20 years. I need to read the article that you read <laughs> to find out that when I'm 80, I'll be caught yeah, up. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Uh, okay, somebody else wrote in and said, I've left comments before. We had my six-year-old son's IEP. He's behind. So I asked if we could get a tutor or do Kumon. I hope I'm saying that right, which helps with reading and a lot of academics. But his SSD teachers told me that wasn't a good idea and that he could shut shut down what do you think I don't think he's gonna shut down it, it really depends on how delayed he is so I I say yes definitely get a tutor I mean there's no question about that because uh, it, it really depends on the style of the tutor I mean a lot of times what you know ABA therapists are doing is similar to tutoring mm -hmm. except they're tutoring not just in academics but in many other areas as well Kumon uh, we've had a lot of kids benefit from Kumon um, it is you, your child should be pretty high functioning if you're considering something like Kumon because it is a lot of they'll give you exercises and then there's a lot of independent work 
Um, there's many others of these as well. I think in California we have um, Huntington or mm -hmm. Learning Centers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're for after school uh, tutoring for kids and, and they're pretty effective actually. So uh, yeah, that's one thing you could do. Uh, and another thing is just figure out the specific areas and get a tutor and have them work on those specific things. And here we're assuming that it's just uh, academic stuff, but if it's beyond academic stuff, then you would probably be a parent who would benefit from our skills work. Because if you go on our skills uh, website, then you'll see a lot of uh, just detail of, uh, first of all, you'll identify everything your child is falling behind on, mm -hmm. every possible skill, mm -hmm. and then you'll see lessons on how to teach them, and, and uh, then we also have training um, on our ABT website, so anyone can join the skills program, get the training on how to do it, and then follow the program. Six-year-old, that's perfect, right in the middle of skills. And, and I'm just concerned about this, uh, that the SSD th teacher uh, thinks that they could potentially shut down, but it, it, correct me if I'm oversimplifying this. If they make it reinforcing enough and give the child breaks, that shouldn't happen. Yeah, why would why would the child shut down? I mean, uh, any negative experience will make the child shut down. But why would tutoring be negative? Right, you got to make it exciting you enough. You have to. And it's, it's positive. Enough. I mean, these places like Kumon and Huntington wouldn't be that successful if they. Right. If kids weren't getting through them. Right. You know, I, so I don't think that they're aversive. Yeah. I think they involve some work, but hey, our, our kids through our programs go through 40 hours of work. So as long as it's rewarding and fair. Yeah. There's the word again, fair. Yeah, I, I, which I so appreciate. We talked about the word fair last week, and we've continued talking about yeah, it and all the things. And, and it strikes me, we had a viewer write in months ago and, and talked about how their child, they were signing them, their child up to take Chinese. Mm -hmm. And the their mother or mother-in-law, somebody was voicing concern and saying, you know, the child needs to work on their English language skills, and he's behind in terms of this. Why would you put that on him? It's going to be too much. And, and yeah. you know, the mother was saying but the child wants, wants to it. one of my kids did that as well mm -hmm. so like uh, one of the guys on our recovered dvd mm -hmm. one of our kids um he learned chinese mm -hmm. and he excelled yeah. at it and i just have to you know give a shout out to him because his mom just emailed me a few days ago and said that he got into a the phd program at georgia tech for robotics oh okay i, I want to so talk excited. to him because i got a kid who's interested in that too that's amazing uh, that's awesome yeah. but and and we you know we had said to this mom you know it's important to give your children the things that, that they're excited about oh absolutely she started the class and has written back and said that he's doing so well in the chinese and that it's helped with other absolutely. things as well you know yeah, I, I think sometimes i people discount our kids oh, or or sometimes we still in some way or another try to fit them into a mold yes right it's like yes it's possibly not what right now it may not be the most useful second language but with the way technology is developing and with the influence of the far east in mm -hmm. technology this could actually be something extremely valuable yeah. in the future and who cares? It's this a child's like, passion, yeah. Yeah, your child loves it. It's like art, right? Yeah. Like really, how functional is art in our futures? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not. It's a, it's a hobby, and it will make him feel good about himself, yeah. just like anything else that we spend time doing. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, so interesting. Okay. Um, oh, here's a great question. I have a. Uh, 
a six-year-old with autism, we have been working and he, ha uh, he has progressed beautifully over the last two years. Much to my surprise, my 16-year-old has asked to be tested and they believe he has Asperger's. Hmm. And then they write, how did we miss this? Can you give advice to other parents that may be going through this? I was completely caught off guard with this. Unlike my youngest son, I knew there was an issue advice. And we have been hearing from a lot of parents who are having this happen, getting an Asperger diagnosis for a teenager. And when there is uh, the evidence of other people in the family, mm -hmm. they're, they feel educated about autism, but they missed it. You know, I, I guess I, the first thing I would say is just, um, first of all, make sure that it's an accurate diagnosis. Okay. I'd probably get another opinion or just have some standardized testing for it. There are some tests that are specifically for Asperger's. Secondly, uh, don't put too much weight into it. You know, I mean, I think it's important to know if your child has enough of the symptoms to qualify for Asperger's. But on the other hand, if you know that, great. Um, in fact, if you decide to get services, you'll have some insurance coverage for this yeah. now. But what it means is nothing. It doesn't really mean anything other than... Um, you know, it's like saying my child has anxiety mm -hmm. or and how do you miss it? This is how you miss it. Just imagine if your child has a horrible rash all over his body and it is scary and you're going to look at that thing and it's a sudden drastic change mm -hmm. from what he was before. Okay, well, you're going to take him to the doctor and find out what this is and treat it. Right. Okay. Your other child has a very small rash on just one part of his body, or maybe here, and it doesn't really seem to bother him all that much, at least not for many years, and it's always been there, you right. know, and it, it's benign, and that's how you miss it. Yeah. Because there's something causing that smaller rash too, but it doesn't seem to be disturbing him, or nobody else really sees it or recognizes it as a major problem, so it's not a problem. Yeah. Now, this takes us back to the definition of a disorder, and this I always say this, and this is really important, you know, our field, Shannon, of autism has been sort of more or less taken over by, I guess, because of the expertise um, of behavior analysts in treating it, um, you know, BCBAs. It's been kind of taken over by the field of behavior analysis in that sense. But I was, before being a behavior analyst, I was a psychologist. And you have to remember that nothing is a disorder unless it takes away from your um, ability during your work or school life and your family. In other words, if you are still, and this is the same, we just talked about this, if you're functional, if you're adaptive, if you're able to function fine, then <clears throat> the disorder is not a disorder. All the symptoms could exist, but it isn't really taking anything away from your life. Mm -hmm. Now, with Asperger's, to be very honest with you, having been in the field for that long, you know, over 30 years, you see sort of this spectrum. This is the spectrum of autism, you know, and yes, on one end, we have the kids that are just extremely severely affected by autism, not, no communication ability, maybe self-injurious even, like real, real severe, need, need a massive amount of support and help. Yeah. And then on the other end, you have our kids who are either PDD, where they're very mild symptoms, or they're Asperger's, where really their language is pretty advanced, and but they have just 
sort of they're uncomfortable socially and all this sort of stuff. And to be honest with you, when you look at um, very high functioning adolescents or teenagers who say, hey, maybe I have Asperger's as well, they could just as well have anxiety. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of the symptoms are the same. They're social anxiety type kids. They're kids that don't know how to interact in society, how do they feel more comfortable alone than they do with others. They feel their interests are quite different from others. Um, other than that, they're pretty smart. In fact, generally extremely smart. Yeah. And you know, as we all know, some very famous people in history and in current time have been said to have Asperger's and they are geniuses, right? And again, it goes back to, hey, are they functional? Yeah, they're functional. Not only are they functional, they're changing our world. Right. right? They're uber functional. They're leaders <laughs> yeah. in, in areas that we're not as good in. So it, it just keeps going back to that. The only yeah. reason that I would be concerned if you're if you first of all you stop, you know, you have there's no blame here. Right. Like there sounds like sounds like the parent is saying kind of how could I have missed this? Yeah. You know what? We forgive miss, yourself. Yeah, forget it completely. Yeah. There's no way you would have picked up on it because yeah. your child was doing fine. Yeah. And hey, when I say fine, a lot of kids are, you know, I have three kids right now. Two of them are uh, crying if they don't get 100% and the other one's happy if he's is skipping Ds, you know? So what I'm saying is kid, there's a huge variety and variation in our kids, right? So your child, as they were growing up, might have not been absolutely excellent in every area, but I'm sure there was enough of his overall functioning that made you feel he's fine. Yeah. And that's that. It's that yeah. simple. The only reason to be concerned about it now is if it is somehow impacting his life now. So, and typically with my Asperger's kids, what I'm looking at is depression, anxiety are the key things to be aware of. Like if your child, and it, I have a feeling there might be something there because like, why is your child saying I need to get checked as well? It could be either he finds things difficult and can't explain to himself why he can't understand why certain things are just so hard for him mm -hmm. and that bothers him. Mm -hmm. And over time that'll depress him. Mm -hmm. Um, and, it, and particular environments will make him anxious mm -hmm. or it could be, he's just feeling left out because your other child's getting a lot of attention and he is, wondering, hey, can I have something wrong with me too? Because I need attention as well. Mm -hmm. So pay attention to all of those factors. And labels don't really mean anything other than to open the doors to some interventions and, and funding. Um, if your child really does have certain symptoms, they are absolutely treatable. In fact, if he's that high functioning and he's a, a teenager, he can work on treating them a lot himself. Um, and I would recommend that you read or read and see if they apply to him. I guess a lot of books on theory of mind, um, I think they're called, they, you will find the subjects under mind blindness. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that, Tony Atwood has a yes. lot of work for Asperger's that you can talk about. Like he has a toolbox that he gives you and you put all your strengths in there and then you use them when you need them. It's mm -hmm. sort of just taking general concepts and making them more visual for the individual to use. But I would not worry um, <clears throat> and I think that your child probably has a lot of different ways to gain gain help. 
Great, yeah. great advice. We're going to take a short break and come back with more questions. Keep them coming, and we're, we'll get to as many of them as we can. We'll be back more with Dr. Doreen Grambuchet after these messages. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. We were talking earlier, and I mentioned the mom who had written it about uh, her son taking Chinese, and she's watching. And so she wrote and said, I'm the mom of the son taking the Chinese class. He's doing great with it. About 24 peers take the class with him after school. He is on an equal playing field with the peers for the first time because he doesn't know any more Chinese than they do. It's totally fair. There's the word we were talking about. No delays. They are all learning the language together. He loves the iPad apps that I found for him to learn Chinese vocabulary too. And it's a good thing that my mom actually sees now. So she does. The the mom is on board. The the grandmom's on board now. Thanks for all the support uh, in this, Shannon and Dr. Dorian. Great. We love to get updates from you guys about how things are going. We all learn from it. Absolutely. Uh, That's great. Now we have another question that is come in on the live feature somebody wants to know how do we deal with aggression in teenagers especially when going out with the family mm-hmm. um, that's pretty open-ended that's fine I like to keep it open-ended because this man whatever advice we give might actually help any teenager okay. <laughs> not just teenagers on the spectrum <laughs> but any teenager so again aggression is uh, you start with the definition of aggression and, and you have to start with what's causing the aggression and um, like anything else that's a, a non-adaptive, maladaptive behavior, I guess, <clears throat> we'd have to say that it is a, a form of speech or it's a form of communication. Okay. <clears throat> and so then the question becomes what is the individual trying to communicate by aggressing? And this then takes us back to the very basic question that we ask in ABA. There is every single thing we do in life is either to gain something or avoid something. So what is he trying to gain or avoid? So when you go out, um, what is he trying to gain? Maybe he gets uh, your attention more, I don't know. Perhaps if it's only happening when you go out, maybe he's trying to avoid going out, right? So. Uh, he doesn't like going out and there could be a million different reasons for that. Um, if he's more, you know, more severely impacted with autism, then I would say maybe it's the stimulation in the environment. Sometimes our kids are really disturbed by the noises, the sounds in the environment. Get him Bose headphones. Sometimes it could be just the visual stimulation. You could use tinted glasses, sunglasses, anything that's going to, and you you can shape this up too. Uh, Sometimes it's just he doesn't want to be confined to a table for that period of time, in which case he needs breaks. Find out what the cause is. What is he trying to communicate? Without knowing that, you're not going to be able to intervene. And that's why in ABA we always do what's called a functional behavior assessment. And the functional behavior assessment is that you just, you know, you produce different uh, situations so that you can actually figure out exactly what is causing this behavior. What is the function of the behavior? And like I said, it's going to be one, some variation of I want to avoid something or I want to gain access to something. Once you've determined that, that, so what you do is you will teach your child how to request that thing in a more appropriate way. Um... So let's assume the scenario is your child aggresses when you go to restaurants, okay? And you have now determined that the function is um, it's too loud, 
Okay, so all you have to do is you have to teach your child whether it's nonverbal communication through an icon or if it's verbal where you train the child to request, uh, can I have headphones before you go out? And you, the first time you try this is obviously you're shaping the behavior. So you will give your child headphones. You go to the restaurant and it's loud, but you only stay for three minutes mm -hmm. and he experiences it in a positive way, gets rewarded and he gets to go back home. Okay, that's a scenario, one scenario and there could be 20 different scenarios. But the main concept behind it is you've taught him a functional request, mm -hmm. a request that's very adaptive <coughs> and functional to replace the tantrum or the aggression and you do not allow the aggression to reach its function so in other words if he really aggresses and every time he aggresses you remove him and take him home you don't do that anymore because if you keep doing that it gives him the message that it's effective to aggress see so I'll try to water this down because this is a pretty complicated concept that I'm trying to say, explain in two minutes so let's say I hit you Shannon and my the reason I'm hitting you is because uh, I want something of yours I want that ribbon mm -hmm. okay and you're not giving it to me so what you would do as a behavior analyst is first of all you'd make sure that my hitting behavior is useless mm -hmm. so no matter how much I hit you you're not going to give me that ribbon you're not going to let me have that ribbon and the second thing you do is you make sure that I have some other functional adaptive way of actually saying could I have that ribbon right. and when I then you would give me the ribbon so essentially over time you're teaching me that vocally expressing myself or expressing myself through an icon or some adaptive way of expressing myself does work but the aggression format doesn't work mm -hmm. and those two things have to go together so it all has to do with figuring out why he's aggressing and in a lot of cases it's environmental stimuli uh, like noises sounds lights whatever um, sometimes it's just uh, wanting to continue doing what he's doing at home hey I mean a lot of teenagers don't want to do anything other than yeah. sit in front of their computer now mm -hmm. and that brings in the other concept of shaping and I gave a very small example of shaping uh, but shaping is essentially making reinforcing or rewarding very small steps towards your end goal so if your end goal is being able to take your your, your adolescent uh, child out um, then the first time you do it, you only literally go out for two minutes and you then go back home and reward. The next time you do it for three minutes, the next time for five, the next time for ten. And you only do it gradually so that it's always a positive experience. If you, if you, get, if you go up too fast and suddenly jump to 15 minutes and your child starts to have a hard time with it, then you go back and you stay at the 10 minute mark where he was successful. And then you try again and you increase it again gradually and these are all techniques that your behavior analyst if you have a behavior analyst should be able to help you yeah. with now it's harder when your child is a teenager and they're big and they're aggressive because this has not only been ingrained in them so it's a very long-term habit but also because it's harder for you to not give in right because yeah. teenagers can be kind of scary if they're aggressive yeah.
which is why you often will need, you know, behavior analysts, our staff, for instance, we get trained in techniques that allow us to defend ourselves and also to hold the individual in a way that they can't harm themselves or others. Right. And those types of techniques are pretty important. So I wouldn't really suggest that you, you know, sometimes I see moms and they're like, tiny, you know, five, five feet tall, a hundred pounds, and then their teenage son is like double the size. Yeah. I would not suggest that you try to gain control over it. You will need assistance from yeah. someone who can actually uh, hold your, your uh, son in a way that he realizes he's not going to be able to successfully aggress and get his way anymore. Yeah. And then replace it with something more functional. And I have to say, sitting and listening to this too, I'm reminded as a parent of two things uh, that happened to me and how important it is to get help anyway. Oh, Even yeah. if it's not just the physical. Yeah. That I think as a parent, especially when we're stressed and overwhelmed and possibly underslept, we lose our ability to detect check and see what we're capable of. Absolutely. And and honestly... Um, we, and, and we get emotionally involved in it, right? Yes. I mean, it's embarrassing when our children are aggressing in public. It's scary if they're that big. Yeah. Um, it's just, it, we lose, we get, we're very emotionally involved with it and that is just horrible. And we never have the ability to see something from a 360 degree perspective when we're in it. Sure. That's just unreasonable. Or when it's your child. Or when it's your child. And and so really important that you get some help and support to, to get those, through those things. It's so easy. You know, I am I am not an expert. I'm not a behaviorist. And I watched last summer, uh, we took our, our son to see Mystere. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, people pay a lot of money to go and see that. And mm -hmm. uh, previously, we've had a hard time sometimes when he was little. But now he we've shaped up that he will sit in a theater seat and enjoy something like that. But there was a teenager that I, don't, I have no idea what the diagnosis was, but uh, they weren't capable of speech, but they were capable of sound. Mm -hmm. And she was there at, with her parents and making a lot of noise before the show. Um, and they were talking to her and trying to calm her, but then she started to hit them. Yeah. And and I and I felt so bad for them. Right. Uh, and they were and and she kept trying. She had a, a special chair that she was in, and she kept trying to get out the chair, and they kept trying to get her back in the chair, and she. She was making urgent, urgent noises, and they kept trying to get her back in the chair, and then she started to hit them, at which point they gave up right. and let her get out of the chair. And it was amazing to see the difference in this young woman as soon as she got out of the chair, and she literally ran out of the theater. They had to follow her, and I believe she ran to the restroom. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, watching it, it was one of those things I felt so bad for them. Yeah. But it was easier to see on the outside when I wasn't experiencing it emotionally how clear it was that she was communicating something. I didn't know what. Yeah, I wanted but, to get out of here. Yes, I need to get out of here. I have something urgent that I need to do outside. And and how beneficial it was for me as a parent when I was in those moments with my admittedly much smaller child to have someone be able to say to me, do you see he's communicating with you? Mm -hmm. And in that moment go, oh my gosh, how did I miss that yeah. because of all the things that I was going through? I think that's probably one of the biggest things I uh, learned in the application of behavioral intervention. I think Johnson actually was the person that sort of just said it to me at one point in those simple terms. It was like, well, it's just 
communication. Yeah. And when you look at it as just communication, any kind of aggressive behavior or even any kind of challenging behavior, mm -hmm. really, um, you realize, oh my gosh, that it is communication and we don't pay enough attention to what the individual is trying to say. It's so freeing when you have that moment when you realize that it's communication because really it's the thing we all want. Absolutely. We want to be able to communicate with our child. This is true. But also, I think we think of these behaviors as so bad, which of course they're, they're you know, not social behaviors. They're not socially appropriate to aggress or scream or tantrum or hit or whatever it is. But the point is, it, it, when we see those behaviors, we I think the first thing that goes on with us is this whole embarrassment of like, oh my God, now everybody's gonna think that I'm a bad parent yeah. or whatever. And really, I have to say, one of the things I love about Taka, Taka has these mm -hmm. cards that you can hand out. And yes. it's, it's almost like saying, you you know, when you give out the card, <laughs> to be blunt about it, it's almost like saying, don't judge me, you right. have no idea. You right, know, exactly. You really have no idea, don't make any judgments. And the truth is, who cares? I mean, we do care that we don't want to disturb other people in a theater, for instance, or that sort of thing. But we have to remember that our kids are trying to communicate something and they're not always able to do it appropriately. Yeah. And it's yeah. not a bad behavior. I mean, there's this whole thing about, is my child behaving badly? Yeah. You know, and it's not. That's not what's happening. There's no bad in our kids. There isn't any bad. And it's not right. like they intentionally want to hurt someone. Right. They don't. They're just defending themselves, right. you know? And if we get into that headspace, then we have the ability to change it and help Absolutely. them to communicate effectively, which is an amazing thing. And, and our kids are confused. That's what's really yeah. important. And I see that the most with our teenagers because as they get bigger and if, it, if intervention hasn't happened correctly and they're now a teenager who's aggressing that means for at least 10 years maybe 15 years this modality uh, has worked for me right this has worked maybe not maybe you haven't been happy about it right but what's more important is I've ha gotten my needs met yeah and it, it, maybe you're not the one giving in but everyone else in my environment has right. whatever it is like I know when I when you will give in because we're in public or I know whenever you know you'll give yeah. in because you're driving whatever it is right and and the thing is it's confusing for our kids when you try to tell them hey it's not gonna work anymore yes so be very uh, aware of the fact that the minute you change and start in intervening correctly um, you'll have what's called an extinction burst so the the child's behavior will get worse before it gets better because from the child's perspective they're saying wait a minute this worked up till now how come you're not letting me have my way even though i'm screaming okay maybe i should scream louder right so they'll scream louder hit harder do more have a longer tantrum but if you stay with it and not give in then it does extinguish absolutely and the one other thing that i wanted to add when you were talking about the shaping the behavior and when you go out to the restaurant and only stay for two minutes or you go to the store and only stay for three minutes and then right. come back and stay four minutes that uh, i remember that being being explained to me by the wonderful Art Wilkie mm -hmm. when my child was hitting me in the grocery store and saying, you know, you're going to go in for this long and you're going to leave. And me saying to him in my underslept state, but Art, I have to do grocery shopping. Yeah. I can't do that in two minutes. And he said to me very patiently, you're going to do that at a different time. Yeah. You're not going to the store when you're shaping behavior right. to get your needs met. You're right. going there to teach your child. And I went, oh, 
I honestly, he needed to say it to me. No, had, absolutely. And I don't consider myself an absolutely. unintelligent person, but he needed to say it to me. Which is exactly <clears throat> why, Shannon, a lot of times I say, yes, I agree that parents need to be trained and involved, but the truth is, Parents have to make sure the entire family is still yes. functional and running and there's other kids. And a lot of times we can't necessarily be doing all the interventions yes. ourselves because exactly. we have to take care of everything else. We need support right. and, and services. Right. And we're all fighting for everybody to have those. We had another question come in on Facebook. Um, somebody wrote in and said, I'm 42 and believe I have autism. It is against the law in the UK to hold this from me. They also lost all of my rec uh, medical records from birth till I was six. Do I have the right to know what is the matter with me? Yeah, of course. 42 years old, I would think absolutely. Absolutely. And regardless of how old you are, you can still see a specialist and they can help to diagnose you and they can help also identify what areas you need help in. And you can help them identify that clearly. And yeah, you, you have every right to know. Absolutely. So um, you can take some charge of that for yourself. It's harder in the UK. You know, in the UK, there's a lot of other stuff going on politically and it's hard to get the right services. But, you know, I'm sure there are pediatricians who are able to diagnose and help. Absolutely. Um, we had another question come in on the live feature. Do you find that a lot of your kids eat only a handful of things? Our six-year-old son eats only eats Lay's, not any other brand, sour cream chips, Gerber, not any other brand of fruit snacks, and a few cereals. Only rice milk and apple juice. Have worked a bit with the feeding team at Children's Hospital in Wisconsin. So just wondering what your experience has been with this area of spectrum slash sensory issues as always. Thank you. So, yes, we, um, and I'm so glad this person's question came in right after the previous one because, you know, we have a, a whole series of services that, that we call SOS services, and mm -hmm. that stands for Specialized Outpatient Services, and the aggressive sort of behaviors fall under that too. So, in other words, if we can help you, please feel free to contact us. We do have supervisors who will just deal with aggressive behavior and just deal with that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Pretty much regardless of where you are, we can help you. So, because, as you said, Art Wilkie, one of our best behaviorists, uh, uh, could also travel and come to you and help you with that. Now, in regards to feeding, I've had kids who, here who have started with G-tubes, you know, mm. so they're not eating anything. And um, my philosophy on, and we do get them to the point where they're eating a very healthy diet. We have a lot of programming and feed. We have a feeding clinics. So we focus very much on feeding and it's a shaping procedure. So we take all the foods that the child likes and they become rewards. And those are now <clears throat> given to the child contingent on small chunks of other types of foods. And then you gradually increase the foods that were not uh, previously um, taken and you decrease the reinforcers. So there's a balanced level. Um, it's not a very long or difficult procedure. It works. It's always successful it, um, if it's done right. Yes, there's a huge sensory component to it. A lot of children, um, if a child has that need for certain items to be perfect or of a certain brand, then it's either an obsessive compulsive portion of the child's uh, problems. In other words, he's just being, I used to have a child who would only eat perfectly shaped Cheerios, mm. not if they were broken, but mm. perfect. And that was very much OCD, obsessive compulsive stuff, which again is anxiety. Um, 
other kids will only eat certain brands because they've generalized in that way. I think my philosophy of, of food withdrawal or restriction is that our kids will eat something, it will make them feel bad, and then they'll generalize that, overgeneralize that to other types of foods in some category. For instance, as an adult, you might eat, let's say, beans and not feel very good, and then you will say, okay, it makes sense that I shouldn't eat other types of legumes, you know, like garbanzos and black beans as well, and other beans. You'll stay in the same food category because, you know, there's something in there. But with kids, they won't, they don't know that, so they'll generalize according to things like color. I'm not going to eat anything that's the same color or anything that's the same texture. Mm -hmm. I will only eat crunchy foods because last time I had something that wasn't crunchy, it made me feel really bad. And it's not like they're reasoning that. This is just very subconscious conditioning. It's your body reacting to things of the same nature. Uh, so yeah, all of that can be reversed and expanded upon. Feeding is not a huge issue. As long as your child's swallowing, which they are, mm -hmm. and we will teach them chewing, we will teach them everything else, and we will expand their food. So any uh, a lot of behaviorists can do feeding programs. There's a whole mm -hmm. subspecialty of feeding mm -hmm. within ABA. And so you should absolutely be able to get that help. And again, we'd be happy to help as well. Okay, great. Um, we're getting so many questions coming in and, and so many things that we had a, a follow-up on a couple of the questions that you've said, so I'm going to focus on those. Um, thanks uh, so much, Dr. Doreen. This is in reference to my question about aggression with her 15-year-old. Yes. Uh, it's triggered by kids crying. There are kids crying everywhere and hard to avoid. He's bigger than me and now even stronger than my husband. Safely, safety comes first. We're avoiding outdoors with the family unless okay. this situation is resolved. Our two other kids get tense because of this situation and family time together is missing. We will be getting private ABA soon, which is fabulous news. Um, they want to know if there's any tips that you would like to add. It's a desperate situation, yes. and thank you so much. Sure, it's my pleasure, and this is actually a pretty easy one. So what you do is a sort of desensitization schedule. It's fabulous that you've identified that it's triggered by kids crying. I don't know if it's triggered by the sound of kids crying or by seeing kids crying. Either way, what you do, let's assume it's by sound of kids crying. So what you would do is you literally will produce stimuli at home that make that effect. So let's say you'll get a bunch of videotapes of kids crying, you'll get video, you'll get audio tapes of kids crying. And again, you will teach your child at home to take a set of Bose headphones and put them on when that stimulus begins. Mm. And they will then be able to avoid the sound uh, that's bothering them. Try that because it might be the sound and the visual might not necessarily affect them. Some kids get very upset when they see other children crying because the, the empathy, they, they have so much sadness for the child. If that's the case, then you generally just will be able to habituate your child and you'll play the video. And this is again desensitization, so you can even start with just a picture with an audio in the background or just audio and then you will eventually go to a video and you expose your child, teach them to put the headphones on and then you will take them out and again have the headphones available for your child so that anytime they see that they can try them on. Okay. Try this and let me know how it works. Okay, so right back to us. Um, and then an, uh, another follow-up after the food question, somebody wants to know, hi Dr. Doreen, do you have supervisors or specialists who work on sensory issues? Because we talked about the food issues. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
Yes, we do. I mean, sensory is such a big part of our program. I'm a big, big believer that our kids have sensory problems across the board, very dysregulated and sensitivities. Um, so it's a part of our program. They're not going to come and just work on sensory issues. They will incorporate sensory issues into their intervention so that over time the sensory issues will dissipate. And during intervention, we just, we accommodate, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. We will make sure that things are presented in a sensory friendly way to each child. Okay. And if somebody has a specific sensory issue though, could they go through SOS for that? They cer certainly can. I okay. mean, feeding is not necessarily a sensory issue. Mm -hmm. It's more of a learned behavior. Okay. It starts with a bio biological issue and it becomes a learned behavior. Mm -hmm. Uh, it could start with a sensory issue, but it becomes a learned okay. behavior because it expands, it okay. spreads. But absolutely, we I'm happy to work with people who have sensory issues because it's just so easy to um, integrate their issues or modify the environment to help right. them. Emily, do we have time for one more? It's 11. We're out of time. Yeah. Uh, so for those of you who've been writing in, we will take note of them and do them at another time. Absolutely. Um, and we so appreciate you writing in. But I thank you so much. This was a, a fast pleasure. hour. I learned so much. And, you know, I love that people are interacting with us. Yes. I really encourage you to do that. And, and I also ask that uh, people, we, we get so many emails, Shannon, as you know, that of people who thank us for the show. And I really love doing this show. And I hope that we can grow it. <clears throat> and we have so many spectacular people here at Dude. CARD who would love to do the same thing. And if we can just get higher viewership, we will basically then be able to afford to um, have this show go on many more hours during the day as well, So or other shows. Mm -hmm. But um, So we ask you to let other families know, just spread the word about Autism yes. Live as a whole, because if we can start to increase our viewership, then a lot of other good things will come. Mm -hmm.